Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And this week, we will be arguing in defense of some of the most controversial, least favorite, most complicated characters in Harry Potter. That's right. Well, before we begin, I'd like to shout out the brand new Hogwarts Hunt, which is a fundraiser that's being put on through various members of the Harry Potter community. I'm very excited to say that MuggleCast is the head of Hufflepuff House, but actually we're among a lot of greatness. The Gryffindor head is Chanel Williams, who you may know for her TikTok McGonagall impressions. The Ravenclaw head is Chris Rankin, aka Percy Weasley. And the Slytherin head is Maya Bloom, who plays Caro in Fantastic Beasts. Anyway, we are up against those fellow team leaders, but really... It's all a wonderful charity to be doing a scavenger hunt. Look at the MuggleNet socials for more information and MuggleCast socials as well for the clues. Or you can donate to each of our charities. In fact, our charity that we're playing for this is the Transgender Law Center. We got to support and do anything that we can to prevent discrimination. And that's where the Transgender Law Center excels. For more information, check out bit.ly slash Hogwarts Hunt. And definitely check out, stay tuned to MuggleNet and our social medias for more info. Thanks and uh, happy Pride Month, everybody. So yeah, we'll have a link in today's show notes. Thanks everybody who helps out with that. All right, Laura, so let's jump into today's discussion. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. It's something that we've been toying around with for a little while. It started out as doing a defense of James Potter conversation, but we realized there was more room to expand that and look at some other characters who are complex in the series. But I thought as a warm up, each of us could bring one character to the table who we think is completely indefensible. um, And why we think that there are no redeeming qualities for these characters. Andrew, it looks like you have everybody's favorite second year defense against the dark Everybody's favorite. Not after I'm done with him. Yeah, so Lockhart, obviously. There is a special kind of evil, in my opinion, in stealing the adventures of others, then wiping those adventures and everything else from these unsuspecting people's memories, and then profiting off of these stories by claiming they are his own. And then... To carry the ego of someone who actually did all these things. He's an extremely egotistical guy. Um, And then to accept a role at Hogwarts with a bunch of lies as your resume where he will be unqualified to teach. And he knows that deep down. And then, of course, as we see in Chamber of Secrets, he unsuccessfully comes to the aid of students, namely Harry. It's all based on a lie and he just he isn't able to help them. And it's a unique kind of evil. He's not the evilest person in Harry Potter, but it's just a special kind of bad person. And it's always really bugged me. I'm a journalist, so I can't take when people (laughs) lie. I'm not really a journalist, but it hurts my soul. You're an independent journalist. (laughs) Former independent journalist. (laughs) What I think is really interesting about Lockhart is that I think we've all had a Lockhart at some point or another, maybe not someone who is as exaggerated and larger than life than this character. But I think that we've all had a teacher whose credentials we maybe question because they weren't the greatest teacher. And we all probably found ourselves wondering, how did this person get this job? Yeah, or even just a serial liar. 
I think we've all known somebody yeah. who loves to lie and finds it very easy to do to make them sound more impressive than they actually are. Well, and Lockhart's a, a great example of just unbridled ambition, right? Unchecked. There's been no, you know, no one to ever say you can't do this. He's doing it and he's like promoting himself to a ridiculous level and he just doesn't he's not worth it inside. And that's a horrible trait. Uh, you know, usually if we were looking for a more redemptive character, uh, you would have to have like an element of, I don't know self-doubt something lovable there's there's nothing lovable about lockhart deep down he's harming people and and actually putting all the students at hogwarts at an even greater risk he's their defense against the dark arts teacher they rely on him when stuff hits the fan and he's incompetent he can't do it yeah i think we might have felt differently about lockhart if he had if he had sort of a threshold that he could reach where he would realize what he was doing is wrong for example with Harry and Ron in the Chamber of Secrets, had he said, you know what, this is too far, I'm going to come clean, I think that we might be having a very different conversation about Lockhart today. But because he attempted to wipe the memories of two 12-year-olds and it ended up backfiring on him, we don't feel sorry for him. Yeah, right, he got what exactly. He deserved. Yeah. Okay. Eric, what about you? I have another Ravenclaw for the list. <laughs> Professor Quirrell. And again... How does Dumbledore choose these DADA teachers? Um, I know. But yeah, I mean, we we know that Quirrell was actually a competent professor, and he ventured off before Harry's first year into the woods to go and find Voldemort. And based on some extended canon, he thought he could either subdue Voldemort or wanted some kind of glory or accolades to, to locating him. Unfortunately, we know how this worked. Voldemort played him like a fiddle. Ended up, uh, Quirrell is now Voldemort's number one supporter. And in fact, sharing his human body with him in a quest to find and get the Philosopher's slash Sorcerer's Stone and bring him back to life. So because of Quirrell's ego, which I don't think we've really focused on very much, because of Quirrell's own, I can do this, he ends up nearly unleashing Voldemort on the world a few years before we know that Voldemort actually returns. And it's just a complete disregard for the danger of the situation. When you make a decision that puts yourself at risk, okay, that's your decision. But when you make a decision that's going to impact the entire wizarding world, like think about the consequences of your actions here. And there was none of that. Again, it was just ambition the whole way through for Quirrell. And, you know, he spends his last year or so of life cowering uh, under the guise of a wizard much more powerful than him, which he probably didn't think existed. So it's just the worst kind of mistake because it's a mistake, but it impacts so many other people. I like how the two non-Ravenclaws on this panel picked Ravenclaws here. They're the worst, <laughs> aren't they? Yes, they're totally the worst. I don't know how you can be one. Micah and Laura. Yeah. <laughs> Kidding. Well, I think... No, I mean, I think that the, it's a great point because some of the ambition that is normally cast as a negative characteristic of Slytherins is also present among some Ravenclaws who turn bad. So I, I like that we're equal opportunity offenders on this show when it comes to the houses. <laughs> I think, too, like as a Ravenclaw, if you have a so-called big brain, right? 
turn that intelligence, I guess the expectation from where I'm sitting in on my comfy chair in Hufflepuff is that you turn that towards the betterment of humanity. And if you kind of have more of a narrow focus and decide to use your smarts to propel yourself through, you know, high society, all the honors that that gets you and don't end up doing something like doing any philanthropic work or anything, then I view you poorly as a Hufflepuff. And so these Ravenclaws are examples of people that really were just in it for themselves, despite having potentially some level of skill somewhere along the way. Yeah. And there's a lot of hubris there too, right? For sure. I, I think if you look at a lot of the Ravenclaws that we know in the series, maybe with the lone exception being Luna, there's a lot to criticize. There's a lot to look at. There's a lot to evaluate because they have all kind of used their wits for negative purposes, especially in the cases of both Lockhart and Quirrell. Agreed. With great power comes great responsibility. Right. Oh, thank you, Uncle Ben. Well, shifting focus here, Micah, you have someone who didn't get to go to Hogwarts. No, but perhaps she would have been a Ravenclaw. Who knows? <laughs> oh, nicely done. Yeah. So I'm curious to get all your thoughts after this, but I think that uh, Petunia may be one of the most overlooked villains of mm. the Harry Potter series. Uh, while she has taken her nephew in to safeguard him against the dark side of the wizarding world, it may be worth wondering if even Death Eaters would be impressed by her treatment of Harry. She imprisoned him underneath the stairs, made him a servant to other members of the family, and allowed him to be shamed uh, at every opportunity, even more so after his wizarding abilities came to light. She's more than willing to try and repress his magic. And she's willing to let tall tales be told about her sister, demeaning both Harry's mother and father in front of him on countless occasions. So hmm. that's why I really don't think that she is defensible. We know that obviously she really wanted to go to Hogwarts and that Harry represents probably everything she wanted for herself. But again, this is family and this is also a child. Uh, that she is responsible for, and she really does not do right by him at all. It's interesting. It's almost kind of like a hiding in plain sight type of thing, because you don't think of her as a villain since Dumbledore put Harry with the Dursleys. She is Lily's sister. It doesn't scream villain. But when you look at this, look at her this way, it's uh, you get an entirely different impression. So yeah, I, I don't know if I would go and say she was one of the worst, but most overlooked. Yeah, for sure. We'll put it this way. If Harry were anybody else, uh, you know, other than Harry with his unfailing sort of self, lack of self-doubt, she could have instilled in him some crippling anxieties that he either lived with long into adulthood or never recovered from because of her treatment and abuse of him. I, I do agree she belongs kind of on this list of the irredeemable ones, because if you take what a caregiver or mother figure is supposed to be and turn it on its head, you get Petunia. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, based on this conversation, it has me wondering, did anybody, when we first read book seven and we found out the truth about Petunia's backstory, did we feel anything for her or did that not move the needle for us? I don't know that I looked at Petunia through that lens when I was first reading the series where I would look back and think about how she brought up Harry. I think that's more of something that 
we've all gotten to talk about over the course of like the last couple of years and, and looking at the series through an adult perspective. I do think there was probably part of me that felt a little bit bad for her. Um, she seemed like she was on the outside looking in and she really wanted to go to Hogwarts and she wanted to be just like her sister, but for whatever reason, Dumbledore doesn't let her in and, 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 you know, you, you do feel for her, I think to some extent. I think extent. it's because Petunia didn't have a bakery, so she can't come to Hogwarts. <laughs> right. Wow. That, when you put it that way, Ooh, that's pretty rough. Isn't that rough? What is, is Dumbledore's like, what is she going to bring to me? Really? <laughs> Not like that Kowalski guy who always brings me fun pastries. I want some fresh bread and pastries. Yeah. A man with a pan and a plan. It makes you, a man with a pan. <laughs> that, somebody make that shirt, please. A man with a pan. It, it makes you wonder, why wouldn't Dumbledore have given Petunia a fake wand? He already did it with one muggle. Oh, my God. This is why prequels are dangerous. Yep. Yeah, this is exactly, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, and and it's not like uh, Jacob at this time is studying at Hogwarts. It was just a visit. But right. still, still, I mean, I think Petunia would have appreciated a field trip. Yes. A sympathy field trip. Early on, yeah. especially. As far as do we feel bad for her after learning that stuff? Uh, it's kind of like Snape for me. There is sort of this tragic backstory. There's this human moment where we as the audience can be like, oh, I get that. I can connect to that emotion of feeling sad and disappointed. But from that point forward, if your choices are all garbage, like Snape's and Petunia's were, there isn't that much redemption to be had. I'm not going to feel that sorry for you. It's uncomfortable, kind of, but it's not very much because I'm just able to say, look, you resolved yourself to like hatred and bigotry and all this other stuff later. It's like just because you were sad as a kid and then you went and made other kids sad. So who are you? Really? Right. It's about the choices you make, right? Of course. Speaking of that man, though, I think he's probably an indefensible character to some extent. Yeah. <laughs> and as it relates to Petunia, let's just look at what he did. He denied her entry to Hogwarts. And I know it's not technically up to him, but and then years later, what does he do? He puts the son who has all this magical ability of her sister at her doorstep and makes her responsible for taking care of him re-exposing her all over again to the magical world. I think there's something a bit sinister in that. Well, then again, that's how we process emotions. We have to have like that exposure therapy of like Petunia was presented with the choice of continuing to resent her sister or starting anew. And she chose the former rather than the latter. So I think there's only, a, there, not to defend the indefensible Dumbledore, I do agree a lot of what he does is indefensible, but I think that there's only a certain amount of things he could have predicted. We know he needed to put Harry with Petunia because of the particular magic uh, that he was working to protect him. Great point. Well, I'll, I'll share mine. And this one is probably one of the more predictable <laughs> options here. I chose Umbridge. I think that she's... One of the most obvious villains in the series, she's not leading Voldemort's movement or marching at the front of a crowd of Death Eaters ever, but she is using her position in the bowels of government to support it. Um, and as Sirius said in book five, the world isn't separated into good people and Death Eaters. And I think that is a perfect descriptor of Umbridge. Laura, you just quoted Sirius Black I in did. a defense. That's so I beautiful. I love I know. it so much. I know. I have problems with Sirius, but not as many as I have with Umbridge. So <laughs> that's the good, good barrier. Good, <laughs> but I, yeah. 
I wanted to ask y'all um, before we move on here of these characters that we've stated as indefensible, which one of them would you say if you had to pick one that was like the most indefensible, who would it be? Well, I'll never be over Umbridge and uh, her detentions for Harry. Just the worst of the worst. And I still remember feeling so mad at her reading Order of the Phoenix. So I think of this list, I have to go with Umbridge. Same. Agreed. Great. But here's a question. Would any of you have saved her from the centaurs or would you just left her? <laughs> I would save anyone from the cent. Like, I don't know. I, I I would like to think that my humanity would override and I would say I wouldn't want anyone to be tortured. Yeah. Even if they deserved it. Yeah. Because we're good people and, and we want to... We want to help somebody when they're in need, no matter who they are. I mean, there's some people you draw the line at. But it's- <laughs> well, it's it's tough because in that moment, they have to get away. Like Hermione and Harry have to get right. away. They can't even, they don't have an opportunity to really stop what's going on because Umbridge was so unrelenting in letting them go or flee or do what they need to do or listening to them or any of the things a teacher should have done that it had to be that way with her. I am glad to hear that we're all in agreement that Umbridge is like the most indefensible of these characters because later on in the episode, we are going to be defending her. So great job, y'all. Half of Excellent. us are going to be defending her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we'll be coming from different points of view on it. Have that to look forward to. And here in a moment, we're going to talk about which characters we love to hate. But first... Well, I thought we could shift focus a little bit and talk about the characters that that maybe they're not necessarily indefensible, but they are the characters that we love to hate. Oh, man. This one was so easy for me. Percy Weasley. <laughs> this butt face falls in love with the ministry. He's so proud of himself for getting the job. Of course, Fudge just promoted him to junior minister to keep an eye on the Weasleys and Harry and Dumbledore, actually. So he's so excited to get this role. He prioritizes his ministry family over his own family. He doesn't believe Dumbledore that Voldemort is back. Dumbledore's off his rocker. Fudge is awesome and amazing and right. And then, of course, the truth is finally revealed. <laughs> he comes to his senses, Percy does, and feels really guilty, but he got played big time. And the reason I love to hate Percy is because I just love seeing him realize his mistake and it was a very big mistake and it knocked him down a few pegs ego wise he was very egotistical with that role at the ministry and it turns out he was wrong his letter that ron just gets and like scoffs at yeah so he's a really is a great part of that book because you're just like he's what now yeah yeah so smug if i recall correctly Well, he's yeah. also he's Percy is someone who's power hungry. Mm-hmm. We see that even when he's at Hogwarts, he takes, you know, being a prefect and then head boy, perhaps a little too seriously. He also cares about the responsibility, though. That's the thing is, like, I think he really enjoyed being a prefect first for the honor. Right. And that's what Fred and George constantly pick at him for. But I think he also feels like he could handle the responsibilities in any given role. I might make a unfavorable comparison here, though. I don't think he's that much different in his ambition than Umbridge. If you look at it, they're both very much disappointed in their father's lack of achievement within the ministry that they themselves go to the ministry to kind of ascend to these levels of power. 
here's the difference. Um, Umbridge knows what she's doing is wrong, and Percy's just bought into the common public sort of perception of the day. You know, Percy is towing the ministry line only so far as it seems to be a plausible, reasonable route and falls out of it. Umbridge actually forcibly creates the world she wants to see and the reality she wants to see by bending the rules and sending uh, Dementors after Harry to make sure that Fudge, as minister, would support her actions. There's, I think, an entire canyon of distance between those two characters for that reason. They're comparable in the fact that I think they both have some daddy issues. And Mm -hmm. if you look at Percy, I mean, within a very short period of time, he is already buddy, buddy right there with the minister. Now minister doesn't even know his name. So that is kind of a bit of a slap in the face. (laughs) However, I'm just saying, if you look at what he was able to achieve versus what Arthur was able to achieve in his long career at the ministry, it's, it would be night and day for those on the outside looking in. Um, and obviously, Umbridge does something not all that dissimilar. She gets very close to the minister and then can sort of, as you were saying, enact her own uh, policies as a result of that. I'm not saying they're similar in character. I'm just saying they're similar in terms of how they chose to approach their careers. Yeah, I think the key difference is Percy is, of course, a good bit younger, and he does redeem himself, albeit in the 11th hour of the series, but he does eventually come around much earlier in his life than Umbridge, and we're never led to indicate that Umbridge ever came around after any of this. So that's... That that's really the difference is just the choice Percy made later on in the series to come back into the fold of the good guys onto the light side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it it just represents to Percy does the capacity in all of us, even even among good families, so called good families, to stray to yeah. like sort of a totalitarian fascist regime, pure intentions, but uh, it really is tricky out there. Admittedly, it happens. So I'll give Percy that, especially when you're growing up. But, you know, all teens are rebellious when they're teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) I I just want to say, and and this is plugging our Discord and thus our Patreon, I'm really loving the discourse that is happening in our Discord right now, where people are making some real-life comparisons to what Umbridge and Percy would do um, in some, you know, real-life current situations happening that you might see reported on the news it's very funny you should join our patreon it's a ton of fun over there we love hanging out with these folks on saturday mornings but eric do you want to tell us about snape this is a real easy one yeah snape um but i put him in the category of love to hate i think that you know as function of these books insofar as they're formulaic there is that big misdirect there is the person that is held up as this guy's the bad guy but he's not he turns out not to be the bad guy so starting way back in book one snape being held up as this cruel teacher that is dirty all the time hangs out in the dungeons you know really is nothing going for greasy him. hair greasy hair that get but It turns out that he spent the whole first year of Harry's uh, year at Hogwarts protecting Harry. And you're just like, what? Double take. That said, 
once you have that revelation at the end of book one, it doesn't get better. Uh, he's still continuing to make life miserable for the students at Hogwarts. He does some really awful things to Hermione and Neville, um, really just shatters their confidence or tries his damnedest to. Um, and so, yeah, not a good guy. But there's still this element. I think it helps that he ends up kind of being a good guy in the sense that he was working with Dumbledore to topple Voldemort and is possibly the single most important person, like the most important cog in that whole set of gears uh, for that cause. So it's like, okay, I love to hate him because he is actually a good guy, but I really hate him. Um, But then there's also that element of like, the scenes with him are just so ridiculous. I'm thinking in particular when Harry's knocked out after the Dementors swarm him and he wakes up in the hospital wing and Snape has regained control of the entire situation with Sirius Black. And he's talking with Fudge and Fudge is just like so delighted. He's like, oh, Order of Merlin, second class, first class if I can manage it. And Snape is just, oh, just like basking in the glow of this righteous act that's going to get Sirius, who he knows at this point is innocent, is is going to get him like murdered or worse. And Snape doesn't care. But that scene is so because you feel kind of powerless. And then there's that triumph of Harry. You love having Snape as your, let's say, mini villain of any one particular book. Yeah. Snape kind of has a one track mind when it comes to doing what's right. Um, Because what's right for him is that he knows he has to keep Harry alive. It's very minimalist. It's similar to Petunia in a way like. She provides the most, and I mean the most, basic of housing for him so that she can satisfy the requirement of letting him come home once a year. And Snape is doing the bare minimum to keep Harry alive. And it doesn't, like the ancillary characters that Harry cares about don't really seem to matter to him because he doesn't care so much about Harry's quality of life or mental state. He just needs to keep him alive because he made that promise to Dumbledore after Lily died. Also fun to hate Snape just because of the big Snape good versus evil debate back in the day. Yeah. (laughs) Just fun to hate on him from that perspective, too. It was kept ambiguous. Well, even the Marauder's map makes fun of Snape. Yeah. It's like like everybody jump on. Everyone's favorite punching bag. Poor guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we remember what side of that debate we were on back in the day? We'd have to pull up the old episodes of Muggle Cast. I know. Man, I wish I remembered off the top of my head. I feel like we were pretty solidly in the Snape is good corner because we had yeah. done so much theorizing. And we were like, no, no, no. Like, As Eric was just describing, like, good is such a vague term. Yeah. He's not good. He's both good and bad. Mm-hmm. It's crazy that a character that murders Dumbledore could could be considered a good guy but i think we all kind of razor focused if i'm remembering correctly on the severus please thing um yes. to really remember that like dumbledore planned this and i remember feeling after reading half blood that because it was part of dumbledore's plan snape again just is not guilty like is not a bad guy so to speak of doing what he's doing well micah yeah love to hate Love to hate, but I also think indefensible. Uh, So she probably fits both categories. (laughs) And this may be influenced a bit by Helena Bonham Carter's portrayal of Bellatrix. However, 
we know that she is easily Voldemort's second in command. And I believe I'm quoting David Heyman here uh, from our episode 200 interview with him when he said, she has a deliciousness to her evil. Um, We don't know much about Cygnus and Druella Black, her parents, uh, but it is fair to say that the Black name and reputation speaks for itself. She's clearly a pureblood loyalist and obsessed with the dark arts being taught by Voldemort himself. She's the most maniacal of her sisters, Narcissa and Andromeda, disowning Andromeda um, after marrying a muggle. And probably most notably, uh, she's responsible for the torture of Frank and Alice Longbottom and the murder of Sirius Black. So she has quite the resume, but I still think people love to hate Bellatrix. And she loves being evil. Mm -hmm. So she welcomes everybody (laughs) hating her too, I think. Yeah. That's a key component, I think, is love who you are, even if who you are is a horrible person. It's an inspiring (laughs) message. We all should carry Bellatrix's (laughs) message with us. Yeah. Do you remember when Dumbledore was talking to Snape and, you know, made it clear to him, I would prefer that you kill me because Bellatrix likes to play with her food? (laughs) Yeah. Because he knew he would suffer. Right. He knew Snape would make it quick. But I I agree. I think that so much of this and I think we've talked about this when we analyzed Bellatrix's character before. It is surprising to look back at the written word and see how little of Bellatrix there is in the books, actually. But Helena Bonham Carter just made that character jump off the page. Yeah. Yeah. To this day. Yeah, yeah. Th- there's an example of the character sort of even being better in the adaptation than it is in the books again, because I think in the book, if you were to distill it down and like erase our minds of any film portrayal and just have us like assess the character, we'd say like, well, she's the fanatic. You got to have like this, this evil regime. You have to have like the true believer, evil regiment person. But then we'd just be like, yeah, she was in a couple of scenes. Like she, she did that thing with the long bottoms. Then she just like is always harping on the kids for being against her man, Voldemort. But there's a lot of color and flavor that Helena adds to it. Yeah. She also gets Harry to use the first unforgivable curse that he uses. That's right. I mean, she murders Sirius Black. I guess I should hate her more because of that. But also what did it for me was Spinner's End. Getting to see her one, the one person besides Voldemort that she feels some earthly attachment to, not her husband, surprisingly, uh, but her sister, Narcissa, and their dynamic and their relationship is really interesting. But again, Bellatrix is there to say, you should be doing what Voldemort wants no matter what. And so- it's very like it's very good insight into her character. And uh, for my love to hate character, I picked Rita Skeeter. I don't know that we've talked about her a ton on the show in recent history. Um, she is not an amazing journalist by any stretch, but there is some cleverness to what she does. Um, she was my favorite character to hate in Goblet of Fire, which is also my favorite harry potter book um this wasn't a connection that i made before i started planning for this episode but i feel like i need to go reread it now to see if the rita skeeter arc was one of my favorite parts of the book um it was also really satisfying to see her outwitted by a 14 year old i love those moments and these characters who get bamboozled by teenagers 
And while everything she does is sensationalized, her work does slightly graze the truth enough to entice her readers and to keep the plot moving along. Even thinking about the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore, there's a ton of sensationalism in there. But at its base, at its core, there is some level of truth. That's how we find out about Grindelwald and Dumbledore knowing each other. It's another place where Hermione sees the Deathly Hallows um, sigil and realizes that there's a theme here. So it gives Harry and Hermione a direction to move in. Yeah. So I I really enjoy the character, not because I like her, but I do love to hate her. <laughs> it's it's another one of those classic takes of like how femininity is bad in the, the view of the author, the way she yep. shows up and she's very you know, posh and accomplished, but like she actually does not want what's best for the wizarding world. If we all can, uh, can believe that she wants (laughs) success and fame and fortune and all the usual trappings. So she's Lockhart with a quill. Yep. Yeah. Essentially. Do you think she was a Ravenclaw too? (laughs) (laughs) We could probably check on that. (laughs) I do think though, too, just like Bellatrix, there's a deliciousness to her evil. And that may also have to do with Miranda Richardson's portrayal of her. We don't get her a whole lot in the fourth movie, right? Um, we actually don't even get her after that, which she does make a couple I of know. appearances. So that's disappointing. Y'all. Rita was a Ravenclaw. Okay. Yeah, I just Googled it. She was a Ravenclaw. <laughs> oh my God. There's a no. trend here. There's a Ravenclaw in every book. Leave this evil. house. Leave this house. No, Micah, and I have to redeem the reputation. Oh, fine, fair. <laughs> Slytherin. Slytherin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different kind of evil. Yes. Well, I thought we could chat about now after we've warmed up with talking about some completely indefensible and some love to hate characters. What makes a character defensible or even complex enough that we enjoy them as readers? Um, I think Snape is most often the example that fans of the books look to. There are even a lot of readers of the books who cite Snape as their favorite character, not because they agree with him ideologically, but because he is such a gray area, complex character. And I was just thinking off the top of my head, what are some of the characteristics of a character like this um, that maybe people can connect with or at least understand? And I think it's he's deeply intelligent. He has this tortured childhood He's got an unrequited love angle. We've all been there at some point. I'm wondering, though, what is the most common defense of Snape that we've heard from Snape fans over the years? I think that Dumbledore really manipulated him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We see, like, Snape was a good enough person in the sense that he could love somebody. That's questionable whether it was healthy love, et cetera, et cetera. But then to have the, the back half of your life be dictated by this you know megalomaniacal machiavelli character that's going to like say oh you felt for this person i'm gonna use that to put you exactly where i want you the next 20 years it's arguable whether dumbledore was doing what absolutely needed to be done because he needed an inside man because that's just voldemort was that terrifying but at the same time it's wrong that Snape never really got to process those emotions necessarily because he had to just kind of be in it for the last, you know, the last 13, 15 years of his life. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think Dumbledore is the most common denominator as to why Snape was 
most defendable. It's it's hard to argue with the fact that Dumbledore and Snape were working very closely together, and we consider Dumbledore mostly a good guy. Do we on this show? I feel like we critique Dumbledore a no, lot on this show. We definitely do. But I, <laughs> I, I think I say from time to time that he's one of my ca- favorite characters, if not my favorite character. He's a fascinating character. I, I just yeah. think oh, yeah. looking back on it, we're able to see how he was this master manipulator and moved all these different chess pieces throughout the Harry Potter series so that ultimately we got the result that we did. Well, I mean, he is the when we look back at the indefensible characters that we started at the beginning of the show with, Dumbledore is the common denominator with all four of these people. Oh God. You're about to you just blew my mind. Yeah. Um, is so but, but look, but look, here's here's my rule of thumb. Good guy versus bad guy. Are they nice to children? Yep. That's it. Snape is not, he's no. Petunia's That's not. That's a good barometer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, rereading some of the ways he treats the students, like, it makes you sick. And in those moments, I'm like, damn, this guy really does suck. Yeah. But then Dumbledore's like, alas, it works. You know, he like really, <laughs> he really makes effort, I think. Even even with Ron, when he like, in, like, and he gives the points to Neville at the end of year one. I think because Dumbledore was good to, good with kids, he's okay. Or a little bit more all right. He's Well, he's good with kids sort of interpersonally yeah but he doesn't put kids in the greatest position either oh yeah you know <laughs> there there are kind of all those security nightmare moments we've been talking <laughs> yeah about. well speaking of you know something that could potentially lead to a security nightmare or at the very least an emotional nightmare let's talk about filch i think filch is not a character that gets discussed often but i think that there is somewhat of a defense that you can make of Filch and his really terrible, sour personality. He's a member of a society that treats him like a second-class citizen. Yeah. Yeah. And and not to bring up Dumbledore again, but I will. I was wondering, <laughs> do we need to really defend Filch or is it more of a question of Dumbledore's judgment? Because Dumbledore essentially makes Filch the Hogwarts custodian. Uh, and Filch is a person with no magical ability that has to clean up after children who constantly remind him of what he is not. He's already at a major disadvantage in his attempts to discipline and do his job, You know, maybe less so with the younger students because they'll obey authority, but certainly the older ones are not going to listen to what he has to say. Um, and, and I really think that comes down to the fact that it's doubtful he has the students' respect. Uh, he can't even use magic to do his job. Uh, and given his job, this would be a major benefit. So I think, you know, at one point we looked at how kind of inclusive Dumbledore is in terms of his staff at Hogwarts, but I feel like in this role for Filch, it's it's very difficult for him to do his job. It's almost like Dumbledore is putting him in a position to be ridiculed. I really would have liked, now I see there's this absence of sort of what, why Filch does it. We get the sense, you know, we know what he's missing, which is magic. He, we see the quick spell whole thing in book two, which is a big deal, him being a squib and all. But I don't understand why he would put up with all of these, forgive me, shit heels at Hogwarts, these, these students that are just going to make his life a living hell. Is it just because he, miss, he, he feels inferior for not having magic that he then 
like needs to be in the only magical position he can be as a custodial worker for this magic school, because that's a lot of scrubbing old trophies. That's a lot of polishing. That's a lot of bullcrap that you're putting yourself through that otherwise you wouldn't. I really wish we would have gotten that component of why does Filch do what continually subject himself to the abuse? I don't, yeah, I don't think we ever did. I was just looking around and I don't really see any official backstory. That would be nice to know. And we probably, I would assume that there is some reason and story that if we read it, we would be like, oh, okay, now it all makes sense. I assume it has something to do with him wanting to go to Hogwarts. But yeah, you would think that like, you know, okay, you take this job and then you do it for a few years. You're cleaning the trophies and all that. You're like, what am I getting out of this? And then maybe after that, he decided, well, I've got nothing else going on in my life. What am I going to do outside of this? Maybe it's one of those examples of he was, he was looking for another job and just never found one. <laughs> so, <laughs> the job market in the wizarding world is very, very slim. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could see him being like a bartender at the Hogshead or something oh, like that. Oh, that would be great. Dumbledore could have hooked him up with Aberforth. Yeah, I can see that. But I, I also think there's something really cruel, though, about the detention aspect of Filch, right? A lot of times he's the one that's carrying out detention and imposing that on students for doing something that he himself is not capable of doing. And I'm also thinking about like taking the students into the Forbidden Forest, like he does in Sorcerer's Stone. He's not qualified to protect them in any way. Mm -hmm. Should something happen, the students are more equipped to protect Filch than Filch is the student. So security nightmare. I don't understand Dumbledore's rationale here. Yeah. Yeah. My assumption was always that job prospects for squibs are extremely limited in the wizarding world and that Dumbledore, you know, assuming completely positive intent, Dumbledore was thinking, well, this is at least a safe, I'm doing air quotes here, a safe place for a squib to be because Hogwarts is a fortress and, yeah. uh, you know, I can see him going about it that way. But we also have to remember uh, the quick spell um, moment that we got with Filch in book two when Harry found his, you know, correspondence, magical learning um, courses. Remember when he was in his office and he found him on his desk and there was that moment of realization that, oh, Filch really wants to learn magic. I want to be a, a wizard. Yeah, and it's a deep insecurity of his. So it makes me wonder, did he want to be at Hogwarts because maybe he thought proximity to an educational institution might rub off on him maybe. and give him some chance? And we've heard, isn't this the premise of the new video game uh, of you're going to be a late blooming wizard? Yeah. yeah. So maybe he's yeah. always just held out hope that one day that magic is going to kick in. But by the way, I do really like this comment uh, from Danielle, who's listening live. Uh, she says Hogwarts offers great pet insurance. That's why he stays. <laughs> oh, Mrs. Norris. Sometimes it's all about the benefits. That makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Pet insurance? Like, Mrs. Norris straight up is petrified the whole second year. Hey, like, maybe Filch got a great payout from that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah sorry for your damages here. He's <laughs> got a great ADD policy on Mrs. Norris. But why are these conflicted characters so interesting? Filch is a, a character, I think it's pretty obvious from the way I talk about him. I find him interesting and I find the prospects of what might explain his character to be really fascinating. And I feel like we missed out 
on some of that. Sometimes I wonder if there was supposed to be more there than what there really was, because there was so much establishment of his character early on in the books that kind of fades away as the books progress. I want to know what makes these characters so interesting to us. And and we can use Filch or Snape or really any complex character in the series as an example here. There can be things like Snape, for example, things that he does that we're not in favor of. He objectifies Lily. He practices the dark arts. He's a pure blood maniac. And yet we can still see some good or at least track the trajectory of when they had their departure from the bad side or from the darker side of things. I think part of it is the the, the mystery, the intrigue around the unknown. I think, too, it's crucial that there's a point of connection for the audience on any character of seeing either themselves in a character or a universal truth in a character um, to see, again, where specifically they diverged. And it's like, oh, I could have been this way if I had made these same choices or if I had this same trauma, like that's a point. Or in the absence of all of that, just seeing a master of his craft, which Snape is as potions master, you're like, OK, I hate this guy. But look at him brew a potion. And then what makes him like what qualities that are like these horrid qualities makes him really good at this? Because I'm going to learn kind of what makes a potion master get to where he is and see if any of that involves some of the stuff that that Snape is displaying. So I, I think Snape was interesting from that angle too. the fact that he was not only a head of house, but objectively the best potioner in the entire series or oh i hate this guy but oh unrequited love that's so sad or oh he's working with dumbledore okay well maybe there's something here you know (laughs) yeah or oh he was bullied horribly during his schooling years i was bullied during my schooling years and that that stuff i was about to say a different word that stuff leaves a mark it does what is that different word i honestly don't so again it's a it's a point of a point of connection. You need a point of connection, I think, with the best characters to really love them so thoroughly. Conflict is king, as they like to say. There you go. Well, speaking of that point of connection and Snape's uh, bullying during his Hogwarts years, let's talk about James Potter. James Potter was the original inspiration for today's discussion. And I think that he warrants some nuanced conversation. Um, do we think... That James Potter, as we see him in the memories in Harry's uh, or in the books, um, is he better or worse than Snape? Or are they the same? It's for me, it's so hard to answer this question because we don't get a lot of James. And a lot of what we do get of James is through Snape's perspective, which is likely going to be skewed. Yeah. Now, I'm curious though. Is it fair to say that James's treatment of Snape helped define Snape's decisions and who he would ultimately become? Because I think that the mm. bullying of Snape was likely a constant reminder of how Snape was being treated at home, how he saw his mother being treated by his father. And it's fair to say that Lily ultimately choosing James was probably similar to his mother staying with his father. I know that's digging Ooh. levels deep into yeah. some of the psychology of what's going on here but i don't want to like pigeonhole james here people have disagreements 
No, I think that's, I mean, looking at it from Snape's point of view, I've never thought of him potentially comparing James to Tobias. But I think you're absolutely right. He probably sees these archetypes of men in his life who are abusive towards him. And he lumps them all together and assumes that because, you know, Tobias was incapable of growth or improvement that James probably wouldn't be either. Snape cast him as a role and assumed that he was static and wouldn't grow. And in both cases, the women that he loves ends up going to these abusive individuals. Ooh, man, that's deep. Yeah. And you can think about how that would really bother you as a person. You're like, wow, I see this happening again here at Hogwarts. Will I ever get out of this cycle? Are a lot of people like this? Am I just going to keep encountering people like this? I tried dropping the mic, but it didn't work. Yeah. (laughs) You could try, but don't. Yeah. I mean, for me too, it's like we were just talking about what makes an interesting character. And I'm like, you need that point of connection with that person and how they grow. And it's very exciting. I don't have that with James. I don't, I think you'd be hard pressed to find it. Um, James is very, for, for how close he is to the main hero of the story, um, you know, one degree of separation, his father, we have possibly the least about him than we do for most of the uh, peripheral characters in the series. And we've seen him the least, partly because he's dead. Um, But I think that like, unlike Lily, whose love is this resounding uh, ever, you know, present thing for Harry and allows the series to really continue. James is relegated to just a few moments here and there where people are commenting about James to Harry. And so we don't, we don't have that point of connection. It's really hard to say that that James grew or evolved or because we don't see it firsthand. Yeah. And I think, you know, to a point that I, I think one of y'all inserted here in the doc, the only lens we have through which to observe that change is Lily. We know that when Harry first sees them interacting in... um Snape's worst memory in book five. Yes. Um, She clearly doesn't like James. So something had to have changed between when they were 15 and when they got married and had Harry. So I'm wondering, do we believe that James could have truly outgrown his bullying tendencies? I think we actually brought this up in a slug club meeting last month with our patrons there where we were wondering, you know, 15 James dies when he's 21 is six years enough time to really grow out of that. No, no, (laughs) no. And this is, this is my big reason for trying to defend James. Sometimes when you're growing up, you're not a great person. You're a bully, but a lot of people do grow out of that. Think of our own high school bullies. I think a lot of them are pretty normal now. That doesn't mean I necessarily forgive them for what they did back in those days, but you grow out of it. And Harry became a great person, right? He's a good guy. Some of that comes from being James's son. He's a potter. So I have to think that James would have been a good guy, was a good guy post Hogwarts. Really interesting. Uh, For for me, it comes down to an either or surrounding Lily. Either she compromised her principles uh, and married a jerk or he became less of a jerk. And maybe there's an in-between. Maybe there's, you know, like maybe Lily feeling bad about the falling out with her lifelong friend, Severus Snape, 
started to feel as though James's hauntings of him were more valid than they were or had cause as a result of Severus's choice to completely um, surround himself with the dark arts and dark sides. So maybe James was right that there's something off about Snape because he chose not to be friends with Lily anymore. And so I, I think that there's some nuance there. Sure, there's some room there, but ultimately Lily would not have married somebody that wasn't good for her. Yeah. So that's kind of the way I answer that question of like James's whole personality. It's like, well, Lily, who we love, chose this guy, and I don't think she was doing so in like a self-deprecating manner. So he probably did change a little bit. Hashtag trust in Lily. Trust in Lily. And I think that there is a degree to which we can assume that the one year Harry spent with his parents was a happy one. There's a comparison to be made here um, between Harry and Voldemort as babies. And there's a ton of psychological <laughs> research into the impacts of your upbringing, particularly during your first year of life, that things that happen to you during that time, even though you won't remember them, do have an impact on your capacity to grow and thrive and handle certain things. So if we're looking at Harry and Voldemort as sort of opposites, you know, Voldemort was in an orphanage and would not have been receiving the level of care that Harry would have been receiving from his loving parents who he lived at home with. So we can at least say it's probably safe to say that James was a loving father. Absolutely. Which to me indicates some kind of growth. Yes. He was also part of the order. Yeah. He also trained to become an animagus when Remus was transforming, you know, with Sirius and Pettigrew. So there are some elements that show he likely was a good person. We can't listen to everything that Snape said. Like Snape thought that he, he was extremely arrogant, but Snape has reason to have bias towards James. So you have to take what some of Snape said with a grain of salt, too. Yeah. Well, and Snape is also extremely arrogant. Yeah. I mean, this is the guy who came up with a villain origin hero name for himself. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. That's a good point. Right. <laughs> well, I'm also thinking, too, not just about James, but how some of the other marauders, particularly Sirius and Remus, behave towards Snape, at least with Remus and Snape, they seem like they're both, like they tolerate each other, even if they don't necessarily like each other. Whereas Sirius and Snape, it's very much a defense of James, right? And and I, yeah. I don't know, like, is Sirius sort of the wild card in all of this? And would James at 30 something be behaving more of an adult towards Snape than Sirius is? It's It's really kind of interesting to look at the psychology of it all, but well, we're never going to know yeah. because unfortunately James passes at 21, as you said. Yeah. Do we ever feel like, because reading over Snape's worst memory again, I almost wonder sometimes if James is performing for Sirius or maybe they perform for each yeah. other. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say yeah. something similar to that. These these four together, I think they, uh, you know, they might amp things up when they're together they're the marauders they're a little gang they're a little squad 
trying to impress each other. And that's kind of what you do as you're a kid as well. Like you have your clique and if you start interacting with other people, you're also trying to impress your clique while you're interacting with those other people, I think. We all just want to be loved and impress our friends and look cool for the girls. And unfortunately, sometimes that involves being a bully to other people. But but to Eric's point earlier, the barometer for Snape is how does he treat children? Because he's a bully yeah. towards children, which is not acceptable yeah. as an adult. Yes. And do we see Agreed. James treating kids like that? No. No. Thousand percent no as an adult. Well, one last point on James. I just wanted to ask y'all, you know, and we have no idea of knowing this really, but I'm wondering, what is your headcanon about what we think James did to change Lily's mind? Maybe stop trying so hard. Maybe once he saw that she was actually devastated over her loss of Snape as a friend, and she would never have told this to him directly. I think he would have relied on either Alice Longbottom or one of her female friends to be like, hey, what's going on with her? Uh, Evan seems uh, a little under the weather or whatever. Then somebody would tell him and be like, oh, and maybe maybe in approaching, maybe in determining how he should approach still trying to date her, uh, he had to come up with some maturity points to kind of help her out in that time and actually became more of a a friend than this um you know stooge i guess so to speak and i feel this is exactly the kind of thing that fans have always wanted to see we want to see what those early days of order of the phoenix looked like we want to see what it was like for the marauders as they're coming of age under the threat of voldemort rising to power and then ultimately how all of these interactions played out. So what's the name of our friend? Staslav? <laughs> like, are you listening? This is what we want. I also read that James bought one of those happy wife, happy life t-shirts. And Lily was really <laughs> impressed by that. Oh, she was like, yeah. he's the one. Did he get that down at the Jersey Shore on the boardwalk? <laughs> Use it the bare minimum. <laughs> I hate those shirts, those license plate oh, order yeah. things. It's like, man, that tells me a lot about what you think of your wife. Yeah, it's just like such a suck up thing to do. In Yeah. <laughs> well, to round us out today, something that I hinted at earlier on in the episode, we are now going to try to make a difficult defense case of Umbridge. So we're working in teams. So Andrew and Micah. Our team won. They'll be arguing that Umbridge is the way she is because of her childhood. Eric and I, we're going to talk about Umbridge's career aspirations being the real moment that she made some evil contributions to the world. But it sounds like, Andrew and Micah, you're ready to kick it off. I came all the way to Leavesden uh, for this, as you can see by my background. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Micah has an Umbridge office background today. Yes. With the cat. With the cats. Micah and I are arguing that Umbridge is the way she is because of her childhood. So Umbridge, and this is all canon, Umbridge had an upbringing that put her in this position. Her father raised her to dislike her muggle mother and her squib brother, which then, in my opinion, rooted an evil bias in her. The harm she and her father caused pushed her mom and brother out of their home and life. That's true, which showed Dolores the power that came with treating others as less than. So then she gets to Hogwarts as a student, and she never received a position of power that she had wanted, like head girl. 
or a prefix. And that left her feeling deprived. It left her with a hole in her heart. She wanted control. And this was all the more reason for her to aim for power and control later in life. Right, Micah? Absolutely right, Andrew. And if you want proof that her childhood influenced the way she is today, look no further than the relationship she forms with Filch, who is a squib, given what happens with her brother, also a squib, and that her father worked in the Department of Magical Maintenance at the ministry, a custodian, let's just say, and that's essentially Filch's Hogwarts role. One could argue that she sees her brother and her father in Filch as and is in fact trying to make amends for past family issues. Separately, to Andrew's point above, Umbridge got a taste for what it was like to treat others as less than in her upbringing and remove said people from her home early on and effectively does the same thing at Hogwarts with various professors who she considers to be beneath her. She removes Trelawney. She removes Hagrid. She tries to remove Dumbledore, but she (laughs) considers, I wouldn't argue she considers Dumbledore less than her, but I would argue certainly she considers Trelawney to be less than her. Certainly she considers Hagrid as well as others. So I definitely see a correlation here between her upbringing and where she's at today. Agree. Thank you. We got canon to back us up. There's there's no beating us today. I'm sorry. Well, speaking of canon, you know, I totally agree with you that um, what happens to someone during their childhood can have a significant impact on their capacity for adulting, right? And doing so in a way that is productive and not harmful to society. I completely agree with that point. But There are also plenty of examples in these books of people who were abused as children who didn't grow up to be bigots. Um, I give you Neville. I give you Harry. I give you Sirius, who is a great example of somebody who was raised in a very similar ideological environment to Umbridge. None of them grew up to be this way. And I think Ultimately, Umbridge is someone who was so driven by the desire to hold on to power that she saw the writing on the wall at the ministry and realized that she needed to fall into line with Fudge to have a chance to climb that career ladder and grow her power and influence. This was a choice she made as an adult, not as a child. And yes, she was already primed to hold these kinds of reprehensible views before she got to the ministry, but had the ideological tone at the ministry not allowed for her to help fill the bigoted vacuum, there wouldn't have been anywhere for her to go. There are bigoted adults everywhere. I'm sure some of us have known some, but the key difference between those people who are bigots in their day-to-day lives and you know the ones that are then handed political power is that the person who's a bigot in their day-to-day life has a much smaller sphere of influence but someone who is able to step into a position of power and exercise that can have a much more negative impact down the line on a greater number of people which is what umbridge does Agreed. And I'll only add that, you know, thinking about what you guys were presenting about her childhood and her relationship with her father and how he, you know, supposedly taught her to dislike 
her sibling and 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 mom, she also distances herself from her father. Umbridge's ambition, which may have been learned at a young age, is so unchecked that she also chooses to distance herself from her dad because he was a custodian at the Ministry of Magic. So she she has no relationship with her father, and that's because she sees it as a barrier to her own success and rising within the ranks of the ministry. So that's cold, that's calculating, and that takes uh, a whole generation, I think, to develop. And the idea that she could rise to power so quickly and stop at nothing to get that power shows me a very sort of mature sense of following one's dreams it's there's no there's nothing childish about it she has chosen time and again to be this way and it's gotten to the point where being this way brings her joy that we see her throw a temper tantrum when she doesn't get those moments of joy because she needs it but this is all born out of this sort of gradual evolution into the character that she is which these are adult choices that she's making but I would just say she is the way she is. You're arguing because of her career aspirations, but where do those career aspirations come from? Her childhood, her upbringing. Yes, she wasn't a good person as a child. This would be one thing if maybe she was, but she wasn't. I mean, neither was Sirius. Right, but Sirius didn't grow up in the same circumstances as she did. Um, And I would say too that certainly it's all about her own choices, but those choices subconsciously are influenced by her her childhood and how she was brought up, how she developed the relationship with her father certainly impact her de- her decision in, in terms of her career choices. She wanted to be more than her father. She wanted to hold a higher position of power than her father did at the ministry. She sees her father as a failure and her father taught her things that she then grew to take into later in life, um, how her mother was treated, how her brother was treated. She, she enacts those things out constantly um, in, in Order of the Phoenix uh, and later on in Deathly Hallows against those that she considers to be less than. So I would argue that it all begins in her childhood. But there's a definitive choice for her. She is someone who receives a full education. She works for the government. So there is a definitive moment of choice for Umbridge where she decides to use that influence to fuel her bigotry and her bad acting through her job at the ministry. Again, you know, it's our choices that define us, not where we came from. Yeah. And there's a point where all of her hobnobbing can only get her so far, and she causes the events of the beginning of Order of the Phoenix in order to further her own selfish cause. Even her beloved Cornelius would not agree to send Dementors to Little Whinging, and it's up to her. She decides that she is going to, uh, that Cornelius will be so thrilled uh, by the circumstances if Harry is just removed from the playing board. That's a serious calculation on her part that I don't think has anything to do with her childhood or how she was raised and more to do with her ambition, more to do with her career prospects. She sees a way for her to immediately get at the top of the pile. And it's by doing that. It totally does though, because that's pleasing an authority figure. That, and you could argue that's trying to please a parental figure as well in fudge but it's so shallow i don't think she actually believes that she's (laughs) gonna get 
you know, like it's not seeking daddy's love here. It's seeking power. Well, no, I mean, she has a picture of him on her desk. That's performative. <laughs> I mean, I will, you know, we we drew some comparisons between Percy and Umbridge earlier on in the episode. Percy's upbringing couldn't have been more opposite than Umbridge's upbringing. Mm-hmm. And yet they both ended up in very similar places. Right. And I'm not disagreeing with you about the choices aspect of it. But in as much as Umbridge's choices are informed by her childhood upbringing, so are Percy's. Yeah. You have to, I think, at least admit that some of her actions as a child influenced her later on. It's not like she wasn't, none of that was carried into her adult years. I think with every waking day, you have to choose what kind of person you want to be. And after a certain point, it's either going to, you're going to grow weary of choosing to be a bad person or you're not. And she doesn't. Well, and I think it depends on, again, what you choose to do with that. Like I said, there are plenty of people who are brought up in racist, bigoted homes with backwards views um, bridge. that want to that want to take us all back. Agreed on um, bridge that want to take us all back 50 years, but not all of them seek political office. That is a conscious choice when you are going from saying I believe these things, and this is the way I want to live my life. Yes, you will still have negative impacts on people that you meet in your day-to-day life because of who you are. But that sphere of influence exponentially increases the second that you pursue a job in politics, because you're making decisions for everyone at that point. Well, think of it like why Dumbledore backed off from being minister. He knew that he couldn't trust that aspect of him. Like he knew that his views at one point in his own life would have had devastating consequences on a large number of people. And that's why he never allowed himself to be minister. Umbridge sees that part of herself if she has so much self-reflection and just goes for it. She's like, no, I'm, I'm right. I'm going to get all the power I can get. Right. But you'd have to ask yourself that question. Why does she choose to go the route of becoming a member of the ministry in the first place? It's because her father worked for the ministry and she saw him as less than in performing a role that she considered to be beneath him and beneath their family. So what is she trying to do? She is then trying to go to the ministry herself and raise the umbrage name to a higher level. That sounds like a career aspiration to me. But the Stemming choice from her is childhood. informed by her childhood. Yeah. Informed, yes, but not because of. I think all of this is true, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, of course. But that's the point of a debate, right? You're you're taking very well, like not always black one-sided. and white sides of a conversation. I'm I cannot accept that. If she was raised well, she would have suddenly transitioned and been the evil person that she is today. No way. No way. You would have to find some trauma in her past that would have caused her to behave that way. You do get people who like choose to see others as less than. I think overall bigotry is a learned behavior. Hatred is a learned behavior. Intolerance is a learned behavior. I do think that. But at the same time, there are still those people that are inclined to like view themselves with an unhealthy level of superiority. And I think all of this is true. I think that what Umbridge chooses to do in her career feeds into the worst possible part of herself and her superiority complex that drives her to make horrible choices with devastating consequences. 
Well, thanks for participating in this exercise, y'all. It's obviously intentionally difficult because one, we're defending Umbridge, but two, we're taking two statements that are both true. Yes. Right. And trying to argue where the most influence came in when the reality is it's both. Yeah. It's both. That said, listeners, which side of this debate do you fall on? We'll have polls up on social media this week, so you can vote one way or the other. We're MuggleCast on Twitter and Instagram. I believe that's where the polls will be. But we're also MuggleCast on Facebook and TikTok. So follow us. And we definitely had a bank of controversial characters that we didn't even get to today. So, of course, there's Cornelius Fudge. There's Ludo Bagman. Um, That's someone we haven't talked about a ton. There's Lavender Brown, (laughs) Cho Chang, Marietta Edgecombe, Mundungus Fletcher is another really interesting one. So we may revisit some of these in the future, but we would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Let's try to keep that in mind. Don't worry, other controversial characters. We didn't forget about you. We'll get to you one day. (laughs) You didn't sneak out of this. Not yet. Well, if you have any feedback about today's discussion, you can pen an owl and send it to mugglecast at gmail.com or use the contact form on mugglecast.com. To send a voice message, record it using the Voice Memo app on your phone and then email us that file or use our phone number, 1-920-3-MUGGLE. That's 1-920-368-4453. However, if sending a howler, please give us a warning so we can turn our volume down. Thank you in advance. I can just see that email now. This is a howler. It is like, do you, th- do you think we're really clicking on that, though? Warning, <laughs> warning. All right, it's time for Quizage. Last week's question, Dumbledore's nose appeared as though it had been broken how many times, according to the first chapter of Philosopher's Stone? The correct answer was at least twice. Correct answers were submitted to us by Ballyhoo Thunderplump, the only Bort he ever feared, Whiskey the Goat, Ginny the Goat, Eleanor, Buff Daddy, Vecna's Man Bun, Boobatuber Puss, Kate Lyles, the Rouge Niffler, and others. I think it's supposed to be Broke Niffler, but was that a Stranger Things reference too? Yeah, Vecna's Man Bun. I think so. Yeah. There's a Harry Potter tie there as well. There is with the actor. Congrats to all who submitted the correct answers. Here is next week's question. Since we talked about Umbridge so much on this episode, which of Umbridge's educational decrees, what number? barred teachers from giving students any information that was not related to the subjects they were hired to teach. Submit your answer to us over on the MuggleCast website, mugglecast.com slash quizich, or go to mugglecast.com and click on Quizich on the nav bar. Fourth of July is coming up here in America, so we will be off next week. We will see you the week after. But if you're missing us, check out our wall of fame for more episodes on MuggleCast.com. And also check out me on Swish and Flick, another Harry Potter podcast. Our friends run that show. And we discussed the history of Dumbledore's sexuality. Of course, I was there when the author revealed that Dumbledore was gay. So I retold that story and we discussed Uh, everything that's developed or lack thereof since then. So again, that's happening over on the Swish and Flick podcast and we'll have links up on social media. Again, uh, we're MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. 
Also, make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode and leave us a review. And as we mentioned a few times now, don't forget to support us at patreon.com slash mugglecast. It's easy to forget, but it's the reason why we're a weekly podcast. So I think that's about it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.